<laughs> so we'll move on. Um, Cassie's a, a friend of mine and, you know, we've known each other probably for at least five years now in, uh, in one capacity or, or another. And uh, I have very strong respect for her, all the work that she's done. Uh, just a little bit about her and I'll let, I won't put words in her mouth. I'll let her speak for herself, but she grew up in Owsley County, which is uh, very close to my hometown in Leslie County. So when I was listening to her book, I was listening to it on audiobook last night. Um, it, a lot of the things that were in the book, Hill Women, uh, reminded me of when I was a kid growing up. So, so many things were familiar to me. So uh, she's going to talk a lot more about that. But anyone who hasn't read it, I would certainly encourage you to, to check it out. Um, Owsley's one of the poorest. Uh, Leslie County's pretty poor as well. We're, we're right next door. So, you know, she, she grew up in that way uh, with, with a, a group of strong women uh, from, from reading the book. She was encouraged to go to, to, to get a good education early on. So she ended up going to, to Yale, then to Harvard Law School. She became an attorney, the vice chair of KDP, and she later on became an author and now a city council member. So uh, without further ado and me tell, you know, talking about her so much, I'll let her talk about herself a little bit. So welcome, Cassie. And if you don't mind just telling us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, well, thanks, Trent. Um, I'm very honored to be on this inaugural episode. Um, it's always hard to follow anyone that's talking about dinosaurs. I just like the little kid in me comes out and I'm like, this is the greatest thing ever. I could have listened uh, to Daniel talk all night. Um, yeah, and so I think, you know, today I'm primarily here to just talk a little bit about um, Hill Women in the process of writing a book about Appalachia. And um, I think it's really timely because we're seeing all these reviews for this Hillbilly Elegy movie that's going to be coming out next week. And there's all, all of this um, sort of firestorm around portrayals of Appalachia and uh, how it should be portrayed and what it means for outsiders to portray it. Um, and that really goes to the heart of why I wrote Hill Women. It was back in 2016. Um, Donald Trump had just won the presidential election. All of a sudden, people were really interested in understanding this part of the country, Eastern Kentucky, that had historically been very democratic and then voted sort of overwhelmingly for Donald Trump and understanding sort of what was happening in this part of the country. And so they turned to Hillbilly Elegy, which was a book written by an Ohioan um, that talked about sort of uh, trends in Eastern Kentucky and tried to explain the culture there. And in my view, really um, sort of did two things wrong. One, it sort of blamed um, it blamed morality and people for the poverty that exists in Eastern Kentucky, as opposed to sort of taking this like systems oriented approach and recognizing that people have been marginalized by these systems that have existed for a long time. Um, and two, it sort of perpetuated this really awful um, pull yourself up by the bootstraps narrative that I just don't believe in. It was this idea, you know, um, J.D. Vance, the author of Hillbilly Elegy, seems to think that if people just like set their mind to rising up out of poverty, then they can do it. So put on your bootstraps, like get to work and, you know, you too, young man, can um, go to Yale Law School like he did. Um, and in some ways, my life looked very much like J.D. Vance's life, you know, sort of born into a trailer in eastern Kentucky, um, was able to go to these Ivy League institutions and then moved back home and, and continued to sort of try to make those communities better. Um, but my takeaway was very different than his in that it wasn't about, um, you know, 
put on your bootstraps and like get to work. It was recognizing that it takes systems and generations. And in my case, three generations of really strong, dedicated mountain women to kind of create those sorts of opportunities and affect that kind of change. So that in sort of a nutshell is um, why I wrote Hill Women. I, I really like that, Cassie, and listening to you I, this afternoon, I listened to you read some excerpts from your book, and I was really taken by that intergenerational aspect of it, um, of, of moving your family moving into education out of poverty. Um, and I really liked the story that you told about your mom um, and her graduation and your participation in that. And I wanted to just ask you a little bit more about, you know, what do you think in your family helped you all move forward um, and so that you were able to achieve kind of your grandmother's dreams um, yourself? Yeah, it's a good question um, because one thing that I, you know, like to think about a lot is um, it's not that I think other families didn't have these dreams for their children or grandchildren. So sort of what happened in, in the case of my family. Um, and I think it's sort of, you know, you, you have to have all these pieces of having um, a family that's committed to education and instills that value generation after generation after generation and people keep building on it. And also just this right sort of um, combination of other factors too. You know, my mom um, almost didn't go to Berea College, but she happened to have mentors and teachers and role models and a sister and a mother and all these people that each time that she was sort of like, you know what, college, that seems scary. No one in my family's done that. Not a lot of people in my town have done that. It just happened that every single time there was someone that um, that she sort of had those thoughts or had those barriers, there was someone that was like, nope, you're going to college, I'll drive you. Nope, you'd say you don't have money for textbooks, here's $200, like no more excuses. Um, and so I think in a lot of ways, it's this combination of chance and it's this combination of having systems in place to sort of be the fail safe for chance. Um, but it's a really complicated question. I think when we talk about where are these areas in Eastern Kentucky that still have a lot of poverty, where we go from here, we have to recognize that it's not um, this one size fits all solution. And if it was, someone would have solved it by now. If it was an easy problem, there have been a lot of smart people thinking about it. It would have been fixed already. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, when you were talking about your grandmother and the women in your family, it reminded me, uh, reminded me of my grandmother who, um, who also went to Berea College, but she she went there to be a teacher on a uh, an, an emergency teaching certificate through some some sort of deal they had to take two classes and you, you could become a teacher. So she taught in a one room schoolhouse, kindergarten through eighth grade. So I can't I can't imagine doing that. Uh, in your book, you, you mentioned something to the effect of, um, and I, and I apologize that I'm I'm going to get this wrong, but you can you can correct me um, that the 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 men in your maybe uh, your family or just people you know, they, uh, there, there was a, a sort of a pride about staying home and helping out with the family. And it was difficult for some people to see you or others go away to college. And, um, you know, there's maybe a little bit of lack of understanding about that on the, on the men's side, but the, but the women really pushed because they thought that education was the great equalizer, I guess, and, and encouraged you and the others to do that. So I was wondering if you wanted to talk a little bit more about that. Yeah, I think specifically for men of my papa's generation, there was this sense that 
you know, family is the most important thing in the world, which I agree, family is an incredibly important thing. And I think that's something that people miss about Eastern Kentucky is that there is real value in the sense of connection to family and connection to the land. And I think too often we discount that. Um, but for men of my papa's generation, it was, you know, the singular most important thing. Um, and in some ways, I think his identity as a man and as a father was tied into this idea of, I can take care of my family. It's the most important thing. You know, they should stay here with me um, in, in, in Owsley County because I can take care of them. And it really sort of shaped the way he thought about things like his children wanting to go and pursue opportunities outside of sort of the holler that the family lived in. Um, and I think that's changing. I think people are recognizing that, you know, it's a good thing to be able to go away and explore and have opportunities um, if, if people want to. I also think that, you know, there's still, um, there is still a sense in some of these communities, this idea that uh, living close to your family is a really important thing. And again, I, I don't want to ever disrespect that because I think it's something that outsiders kind of look at and they're like, why would staying close to family, why would that be so important? But once you're a part of it, you realize like there really is value in small towns like that. And it's how I grew up and I recognize, you know, my son is not going to grow up in that kind of environment. And there are downsides to that. And there are things that he will miss out on. Yeah, Absolutely. I definitely agree with, with what you're saying. Um, one of the things I was thinking about while you were just talking about that, about, you know, the leaving home, staying home, that, you know, that, that shift of understanding, um, you know, you, you did leave home and you live in Louisville now, right? So you, you've left Eastern Kentucky as well. Um, in Kentucky, we talk a lot about that urban rural divide. Um, those of us who live in Lexington here, live in Louisville, you know, we kind of live in these different realms than it, it seems like often um, those who live in the rural areas do. Um, and I feel like it's something to me as a Kentuckian that's so important that we, we reach out to break down that barrier and understand each other. So many uh, people who live here, like yourself, like Trent, you know, grew up in Eastern Kentucky and now live in, in more urban areas. What are your thoughts on that, that rural urban divide and how can we bridge it better? Yeah, I think so much of it has to be actual face-to-face -face interactions that are rooted in genuinely wanting to understand each other. Um, I think increasingly just in the world in general, we all sort of go to our corners and have our opinions and have a really hard time setting those aside to sort of start from a place of, I really wanna understand what you believe and why it's different from what I believe. Um, and I think it's hard, you know, just, getting into Eastern Kentucky, sort of the mountains, the roads, there's not a lot of sort of tourism industry in some of these like smaller, more isolated towns. So a lot of people don't have a reason to go there. And so I think we have to be really intentional about structuring meaningful opportunities for folks to interact and engage in dialogue that aren't sort of, I think too often we do this whole poverty tourism thing where it's like, we take people from a city or we take people from a privileged environment and we put them on a bus and we drive them around and we say, hey, look at poor people over there. Look at, you know, the people living in their trailers. Don't you feel bad for them? Um, and then we let people go home and sort of think that they've experienced what it means to live in poverty in Eastern Kentucky and they get to pat themselves on the back. Um, and what I really want to do is I, I think we need to encourage people to see like the creativity in these communities and the good things and the people who are there like working really hard in really hard circumstances to make things better um, and engage in conversations that respect that work and lift up those voices. And so 
um, you know, it's something I'm thinking about. I think there are a lot of people in our state thinking about it and hopefully it creates real change. Yeah, I have a, Dan, do you have a, a question? I just wanted to ask um, Cassie, what, what can we do about some of the stereotypes? I know if you leave the state, um, you hear horrible, usually it's well meant, but it really gets grating after a while. I remember working for, when I worked for the oil company down in Texas, I was sending some books back to some friends and I had coworkers make jokes about, hey, look, Dan is smuggling books back to Kentucky, those type of bullshit. You know, you hear, the first time you hear them, they're sort of funny, then they get really grating and just, you wanna punch somebody, it's so ignorant and mean-spirited after a while. Uh, what can we do to help that situation with, uh, with the way Kentuckians are perceived? I would say one, don't watch that Hillbilly Elegy movie. When it comes out. <laughs> um, no, but I think it's really important that we are putting out portrayals that feel more authentic and more nuanced. And we're recognizing like, hey, there are black and brown people and there are, there are LGBTQ people in Eastern Kentucky. There are like, there's, you know, there are all these different types of voices. There are strong women, there are women writers, there are women artists. Um, and like really focusing on lifting those up so that people see this idea that Eastern Kentucky is all sort of like uneducated backwards white men wearing make America great hats again um, is not sort of representative of the sort of uh, the, the richness of the culture and of the people. And, and that again, there are like really hardworking people that quite frankly, don't need the outside world to swoop in and save them from themselves, that if they had the tools and the resources, um, they could kind of figure out how to move their community forward. And so shifting, um, shifting the narrative to focus on the good things, um, the surprising things, and the fact that um, communities can sort of solve their own problems because they know them best. And the job of these outside you know, people that don't live in Kentucky, don't know anything about Eastern Kentucky, isn't to come in and sort of be the savior of Eastern Kentucky. It's to really, you know, be a partner in offering resources to let folks in the region lead the way. Yeah, that, that was really close to the question I was gonna ask uh, Dan, so that was good, good foreshadowing, I suppose. Um, just, just to follow up on that a little bit more, there's, you know, as, as we've said, there's this outside view that, you know, when people hear our accents and find out, you know, about our Appalachian origins, they're inextricably linked to low IQs and being uncultured. Like, you know, you have to prove yourself if you go to certain places in the world, uh, outside of the South, South's a little bit different because, you know, everybody has their own like subculture and subcultural accents and that sort of thing. But it's just something we've learned we have to deal with and, and overcome. So I was wondering if you mind to, you know, share your experience growing up there and um, and going to these prestigious universities, you know, did you have, was there a period of time when people looked at you funny and, and uh, you know, asked you questions and just made uh, stereotypes about you? Yeah, so I definitely, um, I definitely had the accent until probably, I would guess halfway through college. So I got the sort of accent looks, but my experience was when I, found myself at these privileged environments of like being at Yale, um, I, I very much, I just wasn't secure in myself and sort of, you know, my late teens, early twenties. 
And I really tried hard to hide my Appalachian background. And so, yeah, I would talk about, oh, I grew up on a farm, but I would sort of be like, oh, but you know, we had horses acting like it was one of those like Kentucky horse farms. It was not a Kentucky horse farm. It was just like a, a bottom in a holler with like a mule sort of thing. Um, but, you know, I was really, um, I fit sort of fed into this idea that you can't be from Appalachia and be part of these privileged environments that the two don't fit together. Um, and it really took me until sort of like my mid twenties to realize um, how I should really be proud of sort of the opportunities um, that people helped me have and sort of that jump from uh, coming from a place where not a lot of people get to go to these institutions. And that wasn't something to sort of hide. It was something to sort of loudly say, hey, I'm here and my background's a little different. And let me tell you about how we can get more people like me here and why y'all need to sort of stop all your judging of the places that I came from. Um, and so for me, that was my journey. I think a lot of people um, probably have a similar journey that is more along the lines of, you know, I sort of wore who I was proudly from the outset and felt like people judged it more overtly. Um, I think because I, it took me a while to sort of be more open about my identity. In some ways, it meant that I avoided um, a lot of the external criticism because I was just sort of in, internally criticizing myself, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like a lot of some of the things you were saying are similar to what Silas House says at, at Berea. You know, he says embrace, embrace that. And I feel like there's a lot of struggles for people who move away and you, you don't know what to do and you feel like you're selling out but at the same time you don't want to you know hear about it every single day so yeah thanks for thanks for sharing that uh, julie do you want to go next yeah um i was relating really strongly to to what both of you have said about that you know i moved after college to california um because i thought i was getting as far as i could from kentucky was basically why i did that so i moved to la and you know, I would tell people I was from Kentucky, and and the most common answer I got in response to that was, "Oh, are you from Nashville?" Actually, they'd say Nashville, um, and I was like, "No, that's a whole different state. Like, it's not even the right state. Come on, you know." But I would have people ask me, like, you know, "Did you grow up wearing shoes?" Um, and you know, my answer was not if I could help it, uh, but you know, like, did you go to barn dances or square dances? And you know, it's those perceptions of Kentucky as a whole, and particularly Eastern Kentucky. Western Kentucky, though, has its has its own perceptions as well. You know, and and the media has fed on that for decades, right? There's a whole long list history of how um, Eastern Kentucky, in particular, has been portrayed. Um, and it's really created this perception of, you know, the uneducated, stupid, backwards, inbred um, perspective of Kentucky. And, you know, it really did take me moving away and then coming back a decade later to feel like I had any, you know, pride in who I am as a Kentuckian. And I love what Silas House has to say about that. I'm sure you all have probably heard him say that as well, of like just embracing who you are and embracing that. Um, you know, as you came back to, to Kentucky after having your experience, you know, going to Yale, going to Harvard, um, what kind of culture shock did you have when you came back to Kentucky? Um, and, you did, you know, some people wouldn't have even moved back here, but you obviously chose to come back here um, to Louisville. Um, what was it like to kind of reintegrate yourself after having been outside of the state? 
Um, that's a really good question. I don't think I've been asked that before, but um, I definitely think uh, it was one of the things that I, I um, am very aware of now is exactly what you said of like, we often think of progress as sort of like this one direction, you like get out of Kentucky and then once you're out, you're out and that's progress. Um, and so we don't realize sort of the value in coming back and like that that's like a very legitimate, valuable choice that folks can make. Um, when I came back, I don't think I was prepared for how sort of life had continued without me here. And like people had had valuable experiences here, like my friends and my family that lived in small towns and continue to live in small towns um, had sort of continued to like have these meaningful relationships. And I had left that. And just because I came back, it didn't mean that I got to plug right back in as though I'd never left. I'd sort of missed out on a lot of the value of being a part of a close-knit community. And of course, I didn't even go back to sort of the exact same place, but I was very much an outsider in the community that had formed me. And that's why, although I write about Eastern Kentucky, um, I recognize that in some ways, like I'm now an outsider for parts of Eastern Kentucky. Um, I don't, I am sort of from the community, but I'm not of the community. And it's something that I'm, um, really sort of I try to be aware of when when I was writing Hill Women and when I'm talking about Eastern Kentucky to recognize that um, I have a perspective and it's a place that shaped me and it's a place that I love but you know I am not the only voice or even sort of a voice that is in in that community right now. Yeah I, I definitely understand what you're saying. Well, I want to be respectful of your time as well. We ask you to come on for a certain amount of time, and I know you have uh, lots of things going on. So um, are there any last-minute quick questions or uh, maybe a, a, a quick summary, Cassie, of any, anything else you want to talk about before we go? Uh, yeah, I just want to say thanks again for having me. When you say I have a lot of things going on, I'm like currently 39 weeks pregnant and about to have a baby any second. So that's part of the reason Trent was like, we got to get you on here fast. Uh, <laughs> that's right. You could have a baby any second. Um, but yeah, no, I pre I think it's great what you guys are doing. And um, uh, I, I'm glad that I got to be a part of it. Yeah, yeah, thank you very much. That's the reason we moved, we moved the show. There's a little bit of shuffling around, but you know, I wanted to <laughs> wanted to accommodate that. So th thank you, Cassie, very much. And Dan, thank you. Uh, these were your perfect uh, first guests to have. It, I very much enjoyed it. And Julie, thank you for your help and ask, ask, uh, answering all of our questions and your technical support at the beginning. Uh, it is very much appreciated. So I just wanted to spend the last minute talking about our next show and where we go from here. So uh, next week, we're going to continue this. We're not going to do it on Thursday. We're going to start doing this on Wednesdays at 7 o'clock from here on out. And uh, next week, we're going to have our friend Nima Brewer and Jeannie, Jenny Bolander, who are part of the 120 teacher movement. Um, and we're going to be, and they're going to be joined by Eric Bolander, who will play some awesome tunes for us. So that's going to be a really interesting show as well. We're going to talk about 120, how it started, how it got to where it is today, and where they're going in the future. So Again, thank you all very much. Thanks everyone out there for joining and uh, we hope to see you next time. Have a good one.